Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Testing one, two, three, four. All set. Judge. Good morning. The history of police corruption investigations in New York has run in 20 years cycles of scandal, reform, backslide, and fresh scandal. Despite what some cynics may say, we believe that this cycle is not inevitable and should not and cannot be accepted as inevitable. It's imperative that we learn from history and we must be determined not to repeat the same mistakes. It's September 27, 1993, the first day of the Mollen Commission's public hearings, which are being broadcast live to the city. Judge Mollen addresses the packed room inside the New York City Bar Association on West 44th Street. The assembled media is anxious to see what the commission has found since it was formed, a little more than a year earlier. For the last 12 months, the commission and its staff have studied thousands of documents and interviewed hundreds of police and civilian witnesses in an effort to analyze the nature and causes of the corruption problem facing the department in the past, the procedures the department uses to combat it, and recommendations for lasting improvement in those procedures. Our inquiries have shown that the New York City Police Department is one of the most honest and effective police forces in the world. The public and the media must not lose sight of that fact as the testimony unfolds. Mollen Commission Chief Counsel Joe Armeo turns the lights down to present the very first witness. A pre-recorded video begins to play on a giant screen. A uniformed officer appears, sitting in front of a window. His face is silhouetted, and his voice heavily altered to maintain anonymity. I fear that the disclosure of my identity could destroy my career and possibly cause harm to me and my family. I have therefore agreed to answer the commission's questions without providing details that may indicate who I am. 
Joe Armeo questions the witness, who he calls Officer Otto. Officer Otto, what is the nature of corruption you have witnessed in your precinct? I know police officers stealing money from drug dealers, police officers stealing drugs from drug dealers, police officers selling stolen drugs back to drug dealers. I also know police officers stealing guns from drug dealers and selling them back to other dealers. How many police officers do you know were engaged in such corruption? 20. Based on your observations, Officer Otto, how frequently did such corruption take place? There's police officers looking to commit corrupt acts on every tour of duty. Were your supervisors, such as the commanding officer of the precinct, aware that this corruption was taking place? Yes, they were. Would supervisors be likely to look the other way if corruption was taking place around them? Yes. Why do you think that's the case? The blue wall of silence. What do you mean by the blue wall of silence? It's an unwritten code that you never rat out a brother officer no matter what he does. Officer Otto, in your judgment, what is the attitude that fosters such a code of silence? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of being a rat. Officer Otto, did you ever personally report your knowledge of corruption to internal investigators of the New York City Police Department? Yes, I did. Have any of the police officers engaged in those acts ever been arrested by the police department? No. Are these police officers still on the job today? Yes. Officer Otto, thank you very much for being here and testifying to the commission today. Joe Armeo. The reason we started with Officer Otto is because I believe that his testimony would give a summary, kind of like in a trial, an opening statement of what the public was about to hear, because he was the one witness that joined the two failings, the corruption and the inability or unwillingness of the police department to root it out. Armeo turns the lights on and the room sits in stunned silence. Mollen Commission Deputy Chief Investigator Frank O'Hara is right behind Armeo, and he's approached by a reporter. And he says, Frank, what he just described was a banana republic precinct operating in the city of New York. And I, I took a step back and said, wow, I never thought of it that way. So the enormity of the story that Officer Otto had to tell and to lead off the Mollen Commission, now we've got people thinking, especially the police department, whoa, if they can prove anything this guy just said, this is one enormous story. If this is true and they got the facts, wow. O'Hara doesn't let on that they've already arrested and flipped George Nova just four days earlier. But the Officer Otto testimony sends a clear message. Corruption like Michael Dowd 
is still happening. In fact, there may be a single precinct that has 20 Michael Dowds. We Americans have an endless fascination with police stories. Just look at the popularity over the years of TV cop shows. Some true to life, others pure fiction. Well, there's a police story being told here in New York that is so shocking, you couldn't make it up. Word of Officer Otto's testimony spreads throughout the ranks of the NYPD. Here's Barry Brown. I remember I was working. Officer Otto was all over the news that night, and I saw bits and pieces of it. And there was a lot of speculation who Officer Otto was, what precinct he was from, was he from somewhere in Brooklyn, was he from uptown? There was all kinds of talk. There was a bathroom and police officers would write graffiti all over the wall. They would write things about other officers, who the rat was or or, or vicious things about cops that they didn't like, about their captains or different things. I go in there, there's writing on the wall saying that, who's Officer Otto? Officer Otto's a rat. Officer Otto's gonna die. Rat should die. And I was shaken because I was Officer Otto. In many ways, we were at the mercy of the department that we were investigating to give us the documents that would incriminate them. Finding the tickle file was an important step into the investigation of the operations of IAD. Not so much for the content of the complaints, but the very fact that it existed. Is IAD totally asleep? What's the police commissioner doing? You know, something's wrong with this picture. Something's very wrong. Once I started cooperating with the Mullen Commission, I figured, to be honest, that that was the beginning of the end of my career. The New York City Police Department has the greatest detectives in the world, bar none, the greatest. They crack cases day in and day out. How come they can't when it comes to corruption? Just a question, just a question. I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode six, Dirty Laundry. Mr. Chairman, the kind of serious corruption that Officer Otto just spoke about was lived and in fact perpetrated by the next witness, which I would like the commission to call. If it please, Mr. Chairman and commissioners, the commission call Michael Dowd. Mr. Dowd, I'd like you to please keep your voice up and speak into the microphone so that everyone can hear you. Michael Dowd is the first live witness of the hearings. He's the reason the commission was first impaneled by Mayor Dinkins, because he was caught by police on Long Island, not the NYPD's Internal Affairs Division. Joe Armeo questions him. When did your career as a police officer come to an end? May 6, 1992. Is that the day you were arrested by Suffolk County detectives? Yes. Did you plead guilty to federal charges of racketeering and narcotics conspiracy before the courts of the Southern District of New York? Yes, I did. 
Mr. Dow, do you recall a situation in which um, in your first attempts at corruption you were nearly caught by a sergeant at a location? Yes. We got the call, we arrived, and some guy shot in the head. And uh, we noticed it was a drug spot. It was a known drug spot. So we went inside and there's a pandemonium, of course, because there's people, there's a guy shot, there's a guy trying to administer first aid and he's faking it and I know he's faking it because he probably shot him, I'm saying to myself. One thing leads to another. We end up searching the premise. I find some money, a couple pounds of reefer. After I found the money, I found another little stack of money of $100 bills. And no one was around, so I put it in my pocket. And then what happened? Well, the sergeant arrived on the scene, and after he did an inventory of the place, and he counted the money that was vouched, being vouchered and, the, and, the, and he took the, the drugs, he said, is that all the money that's here? And I got nervous, and I took the money out of my pocket and gave it to him. What did you say to him? What did I say to him? I said, oh, I was holding this. Uh, just, I didn't want anyone to steal it. And he accepted that? Yes. Did you see that sergeant afterwards, after that incident? Yes, I did. We were out at a, a watering hole on Long Island, a couple of us, and I, and I grabbed him to the side and I said to him, Sarge, listen, you know, uh, I'm embarrassed about what happened. I says, but you know, I'll tell you the truth. I was thinking about keeping the money. And he said, you idiot, you had it in your pocket, it was yours. You should have kept it. What was the message you received as a uh, patrolman when a sergeant tells you, you idiot, that was yours, you should have kept it. I'll never do that again. That is, never give it back again. I'll make sure I get what I can before he gets there. Dowd, like those in the 30th Precinct, had almost no supervision. With the reins off, his corruption progressed from burglaries to taking $8,000 a week in payoffs to running his own cocaine ring Deputy Chief Counsel Leslie Kornfeld questions him here. Did a single precinct supervisor ever once say to you, Dowd, I know what you're up to, shape up, or you're out of this department? No. There was times when I was shocked that I got away with so many of these things. Also, mind you, I was becoming heavily addicted to cocaine and alcohol. Were you trying to conceal your use of drugs and alcohol on the job? Well, I used to do it off the dashboard. Off the dashboard? Yeah. The dashboard of your RMP? Yeah. You do lines of coke off the dashboard in your RMP when you're on duty? Yes. Michael Dowd, a police officer for 10 years before he was convicted. Even cynical, hardened New Yorkers have been caught short by revelations of police corruption here. The poster boy for the new scandals is Officer Michael Dowd. In presenting Dowd's testimony at the public hearings, I knew it would have a shock value because it gives it to you in every grisly detail. So my sense of it was, if anyone can convince the public in New York that the police department had and maybe still has a problem, it was going to be Michael Dowd. But even more shocking than Dowd's testimony was that he was allowed to operate with impunity for so long. 
despite the best efforts of one internal affairs cop named Sergeant Joseph Trimboli. One man who tried to report on Michael Dowd's corrupt activities was Sergeant Joe Trimboli. Thirteen times over six years, Trimboli made cases against Dowd. And 13 times his cases were squelched by his bosses at the Internal Affairs Division, IAD. Trimboli testifies to the commission that instead of assistance from his superiors at IAD, he'd faced harassment, and that his investigation was intentionally thwarted enabling Dowd to continue his corruption for years. So essentially, Sergeant, what you're saying is after you've accumulated all of this evidence and all of these allegations, your first request to YAD gets the response of, go elsewhere, we're not going to help you. That's correct. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Chairman, uh... The next witness will be examined by Commission Counsel David Burns. I'd ask you to please administer the oath to the witness. Will you please rise? Raise your right hand, please. You solemnly swear if the message about internal affairs, lack of motivation, and uncovering corruption isn't clear enough after hearing from Officer Otto and Michael Dowd, the Commission calls its last cop to testify. Would you please state your full name? Bernard Cawley. Mullen Commission Associate Counsel David Burns questions Bernard Cawley, a former police officer from the 46th Precinct in the Bronx, which Time Magazine once called the most dangerous square mile in America. The 46 had a nickname, the Alamo, and Cawley tells the commission that he had a nickname too. Did you develop a nickname? Yes, I did. What was that nickname? The Mechanic. And why were you given this nickname? Because I used to tune people up. That's a police word for beating up people. Did you beat people up who you were arrested? No, we just beat people up in general. Why were these beatings done? To show who was in charge. We were in charge, the police. Mr. Coley, how long were you assigned to the 46th Precinct? Approximately two and a half years. And in that two and a half year period, how many individuals do you think you administered beatings to? Approximately three to 400 people. Mr. Coley, weren't you ever afraid of getting caught at doing this? 
No, who's gonna catch us? We're the police. We're in charge. Were you ever afraid that one of your fellow officers might turn you in? Never. Why not? Because it was the blue wall of silence. Cops don't tell on cops. Mullen Commission Deputy Chief Counsel Leslie Kornfeld. It was that us versus them mentality, which allows officers to justify to themselves taking liberties with people on the street in terms of the use of violence. There were very few corruption stories that were shared with us that did not involve to some degree some level of violence or disrespect. It was important to reflect both the corruption that we saw on the street, the corruption of the system, but also the violence that was being used against people in many of these communities. Mr. Crowley, would you please describe to the commissioners a series of events which occurred on a July 4th weekend at an address on Walton Avenue in the Bronx? All right, myself and two other partners, we had a police van, a blue and white van. So on the way back to the precinct, one of the officers said, listen, let's go over to Walton Avenue to the whorehouse. Let's see what's going on. So we went over to Walton Avenue, south of Fordham Road. We went into the whorehouse. We pushed our way into the apartment. We went to each bedroom, kicked open the door. There was guys in there with prostitutes having sex. Told them, listen, get dressed, all of you. Brought them out into the living room. When they were in the living room, we told all the guys to leave. One of the officers grabs a lady. He tells us, listen, I'm going in the back room to get laid. Takes the prostitute, he goes to the back room. So at that time, I took another prostitute and went into another bedroom. If I could stop you for one second. Sure. Were these women afraid? Yeah, they were terrified. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know if they were getting arrested or what. So took them into the bedroom, telling them, listen, don't worry, police. It's okay. It's okay. And then after we calmed the ladies down, we had sex with them. The mechanic is unrehearsed, unpolished, and completely at ease, which makes his testimony that much more unsettling. Were there things that a police officer might do to enhance an arrest that had been made? Yeah, definitely. Could you tell us some of those things? A lot of aggressive cops, they carry a little baggie in their pocket, and they have all different types of bullets. So if a guy gets caught with an empty gun, it's only a misdemeanor. What he would do is he'd load it up for him, charge him with the felony. Other things that they used to do is if you catch somebody and they only have like a little Coke on them, just say maybe they have a half ounce, and you want to enhance it and you want to, you know, make it look like you made a good arrest, you'd stop by the bodega on the way to the precinct. You pick up a thing of almond hammer baking soda and you just dump it in, mix it up. So now when it goes to the police lab, it might go down there as five ounces instead of a half an ounce. All the police lab does is just take a little sample out, 
If it tests positive, they charge you with the five ounces. The mechanic tells the commission that he and his partner had illegally arrested a man named Jose for dropping a paper bag filled with cocaine in front of a building. And that shortly afterwards, the mechanic and Jose made a deal. So now it's about a week or two weeks later and we got to go now and present the case to the grand jury. So I'm standing outside the courtrooms downstairs in the courthouse and I bump into Jose and he comes over and he starts begging to me. He's like, listen, he goes, they're going to offer me four to life. He goes, I can't do this. He goes, I'm old. You got to do something for me. You got to help me. So I told him, I says, listen, I said, one hand washes the other. If I'm going to help you, you got to help me. He says, well, what do you want? I says, I want money. He goes, you got it. If you help me, I'll set you up with some spots. I said, all right. So I talked to my partner. He was the one that was going into the grand jury. I said, listen, I says, this guy, Jose, he's going to do things for us. I said, you got to get him off. So my partner says, all right. So he went into the grand jury and he said that he seen the other guy standing in front of the building, seen him drop the bag. So they indicted him. They let Jose go. And I said, listen, Jose, what's the story? I said, you owe us one. What are you going to do? So he says, listen, I got something for you. So we told him, all right, meet us over by Burnside and Jerome Avenue. So we're in the police van, marked van in uniform. We drive over to Burnside in Jerome. We're sitting there. Next thing he comes up, he pulls up in back of us and he comes up to the car and he tells us, he says, you know the spot at 1800 University, the Coke spot where they sell the grams? I said, yeah. He goes, well, listen, the apartment directly on top of it is where they keep all the material for that spot. That's where all the money is, the guns, everything. So we went, we pulled up in front of the building, myself and my partner. We run into the building, we go upstairs. First, we stop at the third floor in the regular spot, the Coke spot. Just look around in there fast. Then we walk upstairs to the fourth floor. And we, we don't know to believe this guy or what. So we start kicking the door. And the door was strong, it wasn't going in. So as we're kicking the door, I hear like, a rumble in the apartment, and then I hear a big bang. Mostly drug apartments on the fire escape, they'll put plywood with um, bolts into the wall to prevent people from coming in the fire escape window. So I heard a big bang, and I, I told my partner, I said, listen, I said, it sounds like they went out the fire escape. So we kicked the door a few more times. Then we ran up to two stories to the roof. We go over to the ladder going down the fire escape. And we could see the guy running through the lot, like he just jumped off the fire escape. So he was gone. At that time, myself and my partner, we climbed down the fire escape. We went into the apartment. There was like a desk right, right by the windows. And it had piles of cocaine on it. On newspaper, it was like open, and then there was a full kilo. So my partner starts getting the newspaper and he pours it into the baggies. As he's doing that, I go and I look in the closet. And in the closet, on the top shelf, I found a, um, a Mac-10. It's a machine gun. Then I find a, a 
a green garbage bag in the closet. I look into the bag and there's money in there, all in rubber bands and stuff like that. And then in the back of the closet was a 22 rifle. At that time, we had all the coke bagged up. We took the coke, we put it into the garbage bag with the gun and the money. We tied the garbage bag up. So I told him, I said, listen, I said, our van's parked in front of the building. I says, we can't go out the front door with this stuff. I said, let me bring the van around the back. This way, it's quiet street. We could just walk right in the van with the stuff. Excuse me, this is a marked police department van? Yeah. Okay. So I go around, I go up the roof, I go out the front door, I get in the van, I drive it around the corner, and then I go over to the fire escape and I yell to my partner. He throws the rifle down to me, I catch the rifle, then he throws the garbage bag down with the guns, the drugs, and the money. Pauly's take for this particular score, after the guns and cocaine are sold off, is more than $16,000. Was this the only time you would make a score at this particular location? No. How often would you go to this location? We would stop by there every night. How many times would you engage in this practice of kicking indoors? We used to average about five doors a night. Pauly tells the commission that he and his partner sold the guns for $1,000. Mr. Pauly, this person who the guns were sold to, to your knowledge, was that person ultimately arrested? Yes, he was. Were you aware of the, the charges that that person was arrested for? Yes. He got arrested by the feds for um, kidnapping and murder. Here's Mullen Commission Associate Counsel David Burns, who handled the questioning of the mechanic during the hearings. When you're sitting in front of the television cameras, the audience, you know, you're composed, you're in the moment, you're focusing on getting through the testimony, on keeping the cadence proper. You don't have the view that the audience does when you're doing that. And uh, at one point, Frank O'Hara came over and whispered, there's almost too much here. I think you gotta, you gotta move forward. Burns wraps up. His final questions to Cauley are about his interactions with internal affairs after he was finally arrested. Mr. Cauley, when you cooperated with the Internal Affairs Division, did you make them aware of your relationship with your informant, Jose? Yeah, I even gave him Jose's home phone number. To your knowledge, Mr. Corley, did the Internal Affairs Division ever contact Jose? Not at all, no. Mr. Corley, given all this conduct which you engaged in seemingly on a daily basis, were you ever concerned that you would be caught by the Internal Affairs Division? I was never concerned. They didn't really want to do nothing. If no further questions of this witness, Mr. Chairman. Hey. 
Every day on the streets of New York, it's cops against criminals, good guys against the bad guys. But as police corruption hearings have revealed this week, some of New York's policemen are the bad guys. 30th Precinct Officer Joe Walsh is watching the hearings on TV. When I'm hearing the testimony and seeing it on the news, it's like, ah, oh, maybe I should, you know, slow down a little. And But I thought to myself, I, I wasn't dealing drugs. I wasn't doing coke off the dashboard. And like selling coke, I could never do that. That's wrong. Like the mechanic, if you beat somebody up, okay. If they had it coming, if you had a gun, you automatically got a beating. Or if you fought with the cops, you got a beating. That's fine. That's how we were. But selling the drugs, that was wrong with me. I, 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 that was just beyond me. There's a bodega at 151st and Broadway where we would drink at, and the guys would come in and give us money, but I, we still did our job and still busted them. I never, ever protected a drug dealer. I never, ever took the drugs to sell. I never took the drugs, nothing. I was just locking up bad guys. After several days of testimony, the Mullen Commission shifts its focus from the dirty cops to the Internal Affairs Division chiefs and what they were doing to stop corruption. Can you please state your name for the record? Daniel F. Sullivan. Chief Daniel Sullivan retired before the Mullen Commission hearings. But before that, he was the highest ranking uniform member of the department's anti-corruption arm. The chief of inspectional services he oversaw IAD. Sullivan was also the one who wrote the note in the Tickler file, which instructed his subordinate to not enter a corruption case into any records until later. Sullivan reveals to the commission and to the public the reason behind IAD's cover-ups. Chief, why was it that during your tenure, the New York City Police Department was less than fully committed to its anti-corruption efforts? The department became paranoid over bad press. Everything that uh, IAD did reflected poorly on the rest of the department and generated bad press. So when I went up with the bad news that uh, two cops were going to be arrested in the morning or three cops were going to be indicted, I felt like they wanted to shoot me because I was always the bearer of the bad news. And I think, uh, inadvertently, there, there was a message that went out to uh, the field that uh, uh, maybe we shouldn't be so aggressive in fighting corruption because the department just does not want bad press. It was a, a disincentive for them to root out corruption, and they did not work as diligently as they could have in rooting out corruption. And was there a concern about the impact it would have on their careers? This would probably be one of their primary concerns. If they're going to generate bad news and uh, it may not be accepted at the top, this would be harmful to their careers. I mean, the attitude was if it, if it wasn't in the newspapers, it didn't happen. Mullen Commission Deputy Chief Counsel Leslie Kornfeld I think there were many moments when we felt like this was a smoking gun. We were pretty stunned by the boldness 
of, of what we were seeing. And I think that what it spoke to was the absence of oversight for so long a period of time. Chief Sullivan's testimony in particular reflected the depth of the absence of integrity of an internal affairs. Let me just put it that way. I think it was a pretty significant moment for all of us and a pretty compelling bit of evidence in terms of why police departments cannot, should not police themselves. Barry Brown remembers watching Chief Sullivan's testimony. I was speaking up and reporting all these things, expecting the right thing to happen, and, and it didn't. And the evidence was clear from Chief Sullivan that they purposely weren't doing anything with, with the information. And I was crushed. For 10 days now, New Yorkers have been riveted and repelled by, hard as it may be to believe, testimony before a commission. The so-called Mullen Commission has been investigating corruption in the New York City police force. When all is said and done, it is not altogether clear yet how deep the corruption goes or how successful the remedies that are being considered will be. Mullen Commission Chief Counsel Joe Armeo. At the end of the hearings, I felt that we had really done exactly the job that I hoped we would accomplish. There was just so much information out there about the current nature of police corruption and the police department's inability or unwillingness, even better, to do anything about it that I believe that really did set up the necessity for change. With the hearings finished, Frank O'Hara has one more order of business before he heads back up to Harlem, to the plant. He leaves the bar association and drives across town. We rented a room at the hotel on 42nd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, the Tudor City Hotel. O'Hara stands on the sidewalk outside the back entrance of the hotel. A black car pulls up and out steps Ray Kelly, the commissioner of the NYPD. I said, commissioner, introduce myself. And we go in and you're actually in the basement of the hotel. And as I walk to the elevator, the door opens of the elevator. It's like planned. Kelly looks at me and says, nice trick. Ray Kelly is with his new deputy commissioner and head of internal affairs. Walter Mack. Mack was hired by Kelly to replace Chief Sullivan, but he and Kelly aren't there to discuss the Mullen Commission hearings. They're there to secretly meet its star witness. O'Hara escorts them up to the room, opens the door, and introduces them to Officer Otto. I was blown away that, you know, the police commissioner was there. He walked into the room when he was talking to me. It was... It was kind of surreal, you know, and he was telling me that I that I did a great job and he was proud of the work that I did. And 
gave me information to get in touch with him and, and also with Mac if I needed anything. I think that they wanted to make sure that this officer Otto was legitimate. I remember that they said that they were honored to meet me and they were proud of everything that, that I did. If I ever needed anything to, to let them know and that they would keep my identity confidential. Walter Mack was brought in to reform internal affairs. He's a Vietnam vet and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District. And if there's one thing Mack is known for more than anything else, it's his integrity. There was a lot of uh, conversation about trustworthiness. There was a great deal of secrecy and, and the need to maintain security and demonstrate that we could do what we said we would do, that we could be trusted, and that we could act in a way consistent with how to exploit the information in an effective way without giving him up. Ray and I were shocked about the extent of what we were being told was going on and how ignorant we were and how we could do justice to what the information we had and had gotten that night, could it really be true? How would we discern it? How would we proceed to gather it and put it in a way that could be used? I think Barry would say the same thing, that it was it was an initial meeting and he was willing to recognize that in fact, you know, we could be trusted. He was, I think, somewhat skeptical and, and cynical. I didn't trust anybody at that point in time. I figured that they would have to pass that information on confidentially to other executives and that it would be like the game of telephone and that eventually it was only a matter of time before it would get out. But Walter Mack promised me that he would never give out my identity. The commissioner was very thankful with meeting Barry face-to-face I think at that point, the commissioner realized that he had a serious problem. Not only because of George Nova being arrested, but that here's a guy that reported. I mean, Barry, I can't emphasize enough how genuine Barry Brown is. And I think the commissioner felt the same way. When the commissioner left that room, that hotel that night, he knew that the department had a serious, serious problem. A problem unfolding as they spoke. George Nova's back on the job in the 3-0, and he's wearing a wire every day that he works. The case against other officers in the 30th Precinct is building quickly, and it has a code name, Operation Domino. Next time on the set. Anytime you do an investigation like this, You crawl, you walk, you run. We were in the walk stage, and we started walking a little faster. The Mullen Commission and the feds are widening the net as more dominoes begin to fall. We had even more evidence on him than we had had on Nova. But the DA's office begins its own investigation into the 3-0. He pulls the cash out of the bag, and he starts stuffing it down the front of his pants. And we had a recording of him stealing money. 
The turf war heats up, and so does the action in the 30th precinct. You can't come up with a more outrageous situation of a uniformed police officer trying to rip off a drug dealer who resists, and then he gets shot. You know, how out of control could it be? The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese dennis Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.